Welcome to Hallowed Ground Storycast. I'm Anya. And I'm Alan, and this episode is about my favorite dominatrix super spy, Aeon Flux. I already knew about Aeon. I was just waiting to hear it from your lips. Aeon Flux was an animated show created by Peter Chung that ran on MTV from 1991 to 1995. And for today's uh, podcast episode, I made Anya watch four episodes from it, beginning with the pilot. Well, I feel like we should talk a little bit about the impact of the show before we get into like the show itself. Because um, mm-hmm. I had never really heard of the cartoon before. Um, but it's apparently like a big cult favorite. And then when I was looking stuff up on Wikipedia, I was like, oh, of course, that's where I know the name from. There was a, a 2005 movie starring Charlize Theron that was like a, you know, one of the classic big Hollywood blockbuster failure lessons. Yeah. Yeah, big flop. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, the budget was like, 65 million and it made about 55 million or something so it's like a 10 million dollar loss yeah the best thing to come out of that movie was that they um took all of the animated episodes and did like an hd remaster of them and issued them uh like in a three volume set on dvd uh which has like all kinds of beautiful extras and stuff like that and then you just pretend like the movie never happened like but so, like, the good thing did come out of the movie, which is that now you can actually get the TV show. Oh, yeah, definitely. No, I appreciated that. So do you own that box set? Yeah, I do. Um, and actually, like, the episodes that we watched, like, I took them from that set and shared them with you. Uh, I'm not surprised that this show is, like, culty and you've never heard of it because it was practically impossible to catch on television. It's not like it had a scheduled time or something. It just popped up in between music videos every once in a while. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about the structure? Because a lot of the episodes are really short and they were like aired broken up into segments. It was like this thing called liquid television, Mm -hmm. um, which is like a very evocative name and like kind of makes sense because it's like the show is like seeping into the cracks between other shows basically yeah it was a weird thing that mtv was trying out because okay so mtv starts off in the 1980s right and they're they hook themselves up to uh popular music and they're a, a huge hit with you know that teenage demographic the problem with that demographic is that they move on really fast And you have to like cultivate a new audience. And so MTV is like constantly trying new things and new ways to hook a new audience. And uh, one of the experiments they did was liquid television, which actually had like many, many animated shorts, not just Aeon Flux. And most of it, it's really hard to watch. It's so experimental, but also like looks bad. Uh, the sound quality was really bad. So Aeon Flux stood head and shoulders above everything else for having such a complicated, slick look. And then the ideas that were going on were like very deep. And you were like, what is this thing? Like it stuck out. Mm-hmm. It's a lot about like kinks and fetishes. Like it wasn't clear to me how much of it was like, because that's what you're allowed to show on TV. You know, like you can show somebody like tonguing someone's ear. Mm-hmm. Or like, you know, doing feet stuff or, you know, wearing bondage gear. But 
you know, obviously you can't show PIV right uh, during daytime TV. Well, like nowadays, uh, people can curse and stuff, I think, after 10 o'clock. Uh, and then there's mm-hmm. a, you can get like sexier, you know, at that time, too. But <laughs> but this stuff, that was not the case. And actually, Aeon Flux showed late at night only. Oh, OK. So it was already like they were trying to hide it <laughs> because it's so edgy. Well, and also you mentioned that is it he's a co-creator on Rugrats. Right. Which is obviously like a beloved children's show. Yeah, Rugrats, the Nickelodeon's show. Peter Chung was hired to do the opening sequence for Rugrats. So if you've ever watched the opening minutes of that show, it's kind of like a weird tracking shot through the living room of this family and all this dynamic stuff happens. And Mm -hmm. he also worked on the pilot. Uh, and helped with the design of the baby characters. He didn't really, like, create the concept. Okay. When you do good work like that, then it gets you in the door to creating your own, you know, your own thing. And Aeon Flux could not be more different from Rugrats if it tried. I mean, I can't imagine this, like, cutesy kids show and then this, like, weird dystopian science fiction sexy show so when did you first encounter the show like i'm really curious about how old you were i must have been in seventh grade uh when i saw this that show. seems pretty perfect like <laughs> uh well i feel like you would be intrigued by the weirdness like it, it's not necessarily too old for you at that point yeah i think that's about right so in our crazy forgot episode i talked about how my father was extremely uh, conservative Christian. Uh, So Aeon Flux would have never, ever been allowed in my house. MTV was actually not allowed in my house at all. Mm -hmm. Every Friday, I had a best friend who I would go to his house and stay the night there. And then I would stay all day Saturday uh, at his house. And basically, I would try to not be at home as much as possible. And we would watch all the stuff I was not allowed to watch, basically, was what that was all about. You know, like back then, if you wanted to watch something, you had to look it up in TV Guide, like a literal magazine, mm-hmm. and then be there when it was on. And Aeon Flux was not in the TV Guide or anything. It would just say, like, music videos for three hours. So you just had to catch it as you could. I just thought it was this really weird and honestly like gross and kind of disgusting thing. But I was also like so fascinated by it. But my whole way of thinking was in that Christian evangelical world where I was like, she's dressed like a dominatrix. So she's evil because she likes to have sex and she's like very, in command of herself. So I'm like, that's bad. Women aren't supposed to be like that. And mm-hmm. so like the show was like hitting all these things inside of me and and saying like, this is the bad person, but she's the hero. But she also dies a lot. <laughs> yeah, but nothing in the plot works the way that it's supposed to either, right? Yeah, because she dies yeah. in every episode. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was I was intrigued by it, but I was also repulsed by it at the same time. So did you, how how did you feel about this when 
I had you watch it since you had never really heard of it or had a context. You didn't know what to expect. Yeah. And I don't watch a lot of animated stuff in general. Mm -hmm. And so like the first thing I noticed straight off the bat is just that um, compared to what I'm used to, the animation style is really kind of messy. Mm -hmm. I don't watch enough animation to like know how else to describe it. Um, But it took me a while to kind of get over that. And eventually I think I really did come to like the show's aesthetic and and character design and like style of movement as far as like the like story goes it is super twisted and somewhat incomprehensible like yeah (laughs) i feel like this is one of those things where my like strangely literalness comes out (laughs) like i i want the meaning to be a bit more clear but it's definitely fun um and I I can kind of see why the Hollywood movie failed, because I can imagine that the the super fans of the show, you know, you can kind of like it for two reasons. One is the aesthetic, but then also the like overall approach to story and weirdness. Like I can see how the Hollywood movie basically tried to borrow only the aesthetic. And it ended up just being super hollow. The like core idea at the heart of the show, I don't think works as a blockbuster Hollywood movie. Like it just, it doesn't. Mm-mm. No, I've literally sat down and tried to watch that movie about 12 times. I've never turned it off out of anger or anything. I just fall asleep. Like I've never watched <laughs> really? the whole thing. I've seen every part of it, just not at once. It's a real boring movie. I was reading the the Wikipedia page for the movie, and the plot of the movie sounds a little bit like Aeon Flux meets Handmaid's Tale. Like, it's all about, uh, like, fertility and women's reproduction and, like, control of women's bodies, mm-hmm. which is, like, absolutely not the thematic content of the animated show. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely about biology, but yeah. it's, like, not about reproduction. No, I. There are some episodes that are. That's the problem with the the movie. Just takes like, like four or five things from different episodes and just kind of crams them together. It'd be like if somebody tried to make a Buffy movie and they're like, "What are the most popular Buffy episodes?" We'll take elements from each of those and put them into a thing and be like, "There's a singing demon." Uh, so there's. You know. No dialogue for the first half hour. Right, And then exactly. the second half hour is all musical songs. <laughs> and, then, and then the third half hour, her mom dies. Yeah. I mean. It would be like, it would be exactly that. That's exactly what watching that movie is like. You'd be like, oh, I recognize this episode and this episode. I was like, I just want to go watch the episodes. This is not good. So it's not a story. It's really sharp that you observe that the animation is... Uh, like kind of messy you said mm-hmm. because how to, how to explain this without being too boring you would send out animation to a studio overseas like japan or korea and then all the work that you would get back from them would be rejected because it would be off model so if you were doing like animation for the Simpsons or something. Homer doesn't look like Homer, so we can't use this. I see. So Peter Chung didn't like that because he was like, this is kind of interesting that the characters don't look quite right. 
maybe you could just leave that in the story and then that can be part of what the audience uses to draw meaning from the story. So in Aeon Flux, he allows Aeon and Trevor to be off model uh, constantly. I see. Yeah, and I was initially like kind of annoyed by her character design, like her outfit mm-hmm. looks like a parody of like sexy superhero outfits. Mm-hmm. It's like turned up to 15, <laughs> like not even 11. Like the more I kept watching, I guess the less and less it bothered me because of how unsexy it is. And it's like that juxtaposition of like the black strappy leather and like her butt kind of hanging out versus <laughs> just like how weird and gross and repulsive everything is and how like the way the character moves and the way she like moves through the story it's like clearly not supposed to be sexy or like not at least traditionally sexy yeah it doesn't feel hollywood sexy for sure yeah so another thing i encountered uh well down the the wikipedia black hole is that apparently the word eon comes from a Gnosticism, which is like a a type of religion that was popular around like the turn of the millennia and like early Judeo-Christian mishmash time period. Yeah. Um, and I thought you might know some stuff about that that I definitely do not. <laughs> so there's stuff from Gnosticism in this. To be clear... Gnosticism was a heretical mutation of Christianity. It has an extremely complicated mythology. The main idea of Gnosticism and why it was a uh, a heresy that was fanatically fought against by mainstream Christians is because it said that in the Garden of Eden, the serpent was Jesus. What? Yes. And that... Jesus was trying to give humanity self-awareness and access to knowledge about their condition and the condition of the universe because they were being oppressed by their creator, um, who is like the God of the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, that sounds pretty heretical. Like, hey, guys, let's rebel against God. Right. Basically, the highest virtue is truth. And God is trying to hide the truth from humanity. Jesus is trying to reveal the truth uh, to humanity. So we're kind of spiritual creatures trapped in material bodies in a material universe. And Jesus is trying to get us out of that into the spiritual realm, which God has been cast out of. It has very complicated mythology. Uh, and one of the aspects of its mythology is aeons who are like angels or spirits who can pierce through the material realm and, and expose us to truth, like the angel Gabriel or the angel Michael. And so to name your character Aeon is to say that she is kind of this invading force of truth in a world that is trying to be controlled by Um, Her nemesis in the story, uh, Trevor Goodchild, who is kind of like a fascist leader. But Aeon doesn't really have an agenda, though, in the show that way. 
No, but she's also explicitly labeled a terrorist mm-hmm. in the show. Yeah. So to have then those two kind of like contradicting labels with contradictory connotations, like terrorism, bad, truth, good. Right. Um, is kind of interesting. And to see her in the role of the hero most of the time is also like kind of an inversion and subversive. There's also an episode called the Demiurge, which is about fighting God. And the name Demiurge comes from Gnosticism. It's the name for the Hebrew God. But yeah, Gnosticism, I don't know. Gnosticism is interesting. I don't think it's like, you know, the the true path to enlightenment or anything like that. Um, Some people are pretty fascinated by it. It's got some cool ideas. I would say more than anything, it's got a really cool mythology to like pluck names and ideas out of and then put them in your fantasy stuff, uh, which is what Peter Chung is doing here. So <laughs> Nice. So I guess now we can kind of get into the specifics of the episodes. Yeah. So the first thing I had you watch was the actual pilot. And the pilot's a little bit weird because when it originally ran... It was in two-minute segments that ran for like a week. Um, You know, like one two-minute segment would go for a week and then another two-minute segment over the course of like six weeks. So to watch this entire thing was kind of difficult. But when they came out with the DVD set, they compiled it all into one episode because they designed it to be like a coherent story from start to finish. That's just so fascinating to me that it like... Like, I wasn't looking at the minute breaks Mm -hmm. as I was watching, but I think it would be interesting to see, like, is there kind of, like, a natural pause in the action at, like, two-minute increments? If you go back and watch it, and the music changes, and a lot of times, like, the focus of the scene will change every couple of minutes. But it's very detailed and dense in a way that I can't imagine you would remember the details of certain things from three weeks ago that become significant in, you know, uh, later yeah. on in the story. It would be confusing. Like all the stuff about the the weird bugs. Right. So, okay. So to, to let people in on, on what this is, because I'm sure lots of people right. haven't seen this, I'll, I'll summarize what's going on in the pilot here. Uh, Aeon Flux infiltrates the fascist state of Bregna to assassinate its leader. Along the way, she battles soldiers and the soldiers have a disease that is spread to the general population and is carried by insects. Trevor Goodchild captures one of these insects and smuggles it up to the leader's apartment where he creates a cure. When Aeon reaches the apartment, she accidentally falls to her death. As she passes into heaven, Trevor Goodchild supplants the leader in popularity. Yeah, so it's about 12 minutes. It's a little bit longer than the other uh, shorts. There's no dialogue in it. So I'm saying all these names, but I only know the names because of like backwards knowledge from uh, the third season when they start talking. <laughs> so Yeah, I like what not having any dialogue does. And there is like a short news segment at the end, but they have like, you know, teacher from Charlie Brown style. Yeah sound effects but you can kind of infer everything that they're talking about like the plague is spreading and uh, yeah 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 i really liked this episode i liked the the animation of like her having to kill all the soldiers um to get up to the penthouse 
I loved the way uh, it demonstrated her like super competence as a spy and kind of like poked fun at, you know, like how bad guys are at shooting the good guy and how good the good guy is at shooting the bad guys. <laughs> right. But also there's that scene where she's like being pulling up on the rope and then they shoot the rope and she like manages to catch herself with the heel and pull herself up onto the balcony. I really like that part. Again, it, like, subverts your expectation. She, like, gets through, you know, murders, like, thousands of soldiers, <laughs> manages to, like, get all the way up to the penthouse, and then she's, like, foiled by just, like, a random nail that gets stuck in her shoe or something. Right. Yeah, that's, like, the, um, an Achilles heel thing um, from the Iliad. Achilles is, like, the greatest Greek fighter, or really the greatest fighter in the world, um, but he's gets shot in the foot and it kills him. It's like, it's like, what? That's your weakness. So in a way it's like, it's subversive for Hollywood plotting, but it also is like calling back to like one of the most well-known stories of all time. And that is like Peter Chung's style is to take story and the modern expression of story and to say, like, here's a completely different way to do it. And by the way, it's the way we've always done it. Yeah, there are also a couple moments where the animation becomes really surreal. There's the one where, like, the grenade becomes a fish. Yeah. And then the other one where it's, like, like a weird cartoon frog in a rowboat or something. <laughs> but then you realize it's, like, just the, the dying soldiers in the pool of blood. Um, I thought that was really, really cool. What I really like about the pilot is how it has those moments where she's doing that superhero thing of killing all the soldiers. But then right away you get an inversion of that and you see everything from the soldier's point of view, like you're saying, where they're hallucinating as they're bleeding out in kind of like a literal lake of their own blood. Yeah, it's like totally over the top Yeah, <laughs> amount of blood. It's ridiculous. You never see in other... Uh, stories like this with a kind of superhero character and these uh, soldiers who all look exactly the same. You never see it from those soldiers point of view, um, what it's like to die, what it's like to be, to have no meaning. And then um, when Trevor shows up, uh, he's an official from the government. And rather than trying to save any of these soldiers, he just exploits their death um, for his own gain. And there's, kind of like a, a political idea buried in there about how people are disposable, how the public crisis exists to be exploited for the gain of the people who are already at the top of the society and how, you know, there's like a futility in fighting against that because even the heroic character can't stop it from happening. And so there's like a little bit of nihilism kind of baked into this pilot. That is all kind of anti-American and, um, you know, because that's not how heroes work. That's not what happens. The story always ends with justice and goodness. Um, and so it's subverting things, but also has a political point of view that's kind of informed by Peter Chung growing up in South Korea and, you know, having family on the other side of the border and, and thinking about things like that. Yeah, it's so interesting because, like, you know, the Korean War happened in the 1950s. And so from, like, this point in time, 
any of my peers who are Korean or have Korean heritage, like, that was so long ago, they don't have, like, family that they remember, like, as close ties Mm -hmm. to people on the other side. Um, But when Peter Chung was growing up, I'm assuming in, like, the 70s and 80s, like, that was much more recent history. Right. Yeah, I mean, he was basically the child of people who had been separated from their family. Yeah. Yeah. And he knew people who had died over what, you know, over a border, basically over a United States, uh, you know, quote unquote, police action that happened in their country and then was abandoned. It When he writes about war here and, you know, in the American context, war is kind of like this Rambo thing. It's like this glorious you know, chance to show off your prowess. And he does that, but then he uh, cuts it in half by showing like, yeah, "Yeah, there's a lot of meaningless death and everything is stupid. I I like that reading of it. Um, I hadn't really thought about it that way when I was watching it. Okay, so moving on to the two shorts that you had me watch, um, Gravity and Tide. In Gravity, Anne tries to infiltrate an airplane but accidentally falls off. As she rushes towards her death, she struggles with shooting herself and discovering what some Breen soldiers are excavating. In Tide, Eon and another Monacan agent have captured Trevor Goodchild. Aeon tries to secure their escape from a seaside facility, but she is betrayed and murdered by her ally, who was seduced by Trevor Goodchild. And so, <laughs> one of the, the things that I... I liked about these two, I talked a little bit about earlier, was um, the use of repetition Mm, yeah and so in tide where they're trying to escape from the building i like are they they're in some kind of like elevator or something that's like moving down levels that's right yeah and this is one where it's like oh i can totally see how this would work being viewed in two minute segments because like each two minute segment is their adventure on like one floor as this elevator is moving down yeah um, until they get to the bottom I think it works really well as a short and particularly as like a short where you're viewing each of the segments, maybe like not all directly right in a row. So Tide is kind of like Peter Chung's version of Hush from Buffy um, mm-hmm. because Joss Whedon's big strength is his ability to write snappy and funny dialogue, right? And mm-hmm. so Hush is him proving I don't have to rely on that crutch. Peter Chung's thing is these really dynamic and motion-filled hand-drawn uh, animations where you're like rushing through uh, the geometry of of the animated space. And so Tide, from an animation point of view, is much more traditional because it uses the same backgrounds in the exact same sequence for like three or four passes through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. This is a subversion of Peter Chung's style by himself in the show. And it really works to tell this complicated story of like betrayal and seduction. And there's kind of like a, a panic to it as Aeon is trying to get this thing that you don't know what it is. She's trying to like find some kind of MacGuffin. There's also like a yeah. <laughs> a weird thing being lowered from a crane into some kind of receptacle and you're like why is 
and she keeps shooting it to stop it from going in there. You're like, why is this happening? And mm-hmm. none of it really makes any sense until the end when finally the thing goes in there and the entire facility sinks and like yeah. kills everyone. <laughs> and like everything is just a little bit sexual, like mm-hmm. the metal thing being lowered into the receptacle. And then like it turns out that the thing that keeps the building afloat is like a giant rubber nipple. Right. <laughs> um and like and specifically part of the seduction involves like lots of nipple sucking. So mm-hmm. Yeah, and I liked the music in this one a lot as well. I feel like some of the sound effects definitely had a little bit of that like Rugrats intro song tone. <laughs> like I don't know if they were using the same synth or whatever. <laughs> and then so in gravity when she um is trying to infiltrate the airplane it starts with that like the classic like gross mouth animation where like she's making out with trevor and he's like transferring like the spy mission with his tongue into one of her like secret teeth compartments (laughs) and you can just like you're inside their mouths and you can like see all of this happening which is like weird and kind of cool and then when she falls off the airplane this time it's not it doesn't seem like fate or like random chance like with the nail and her shoe and the pilot it seems like she's just kind of incompetent right it seems like it's really undercutting her competence um that has been like so strongly um underlined everywhere else in the series at least that i've seen yeah definitely no it's i think it's very intentional because this was the first thing to come out after the pilot and so Mm, okay i think he's trying to reset expectations a little bit of like hey sometimes Aeon just makes mistakes and uh and that's gonna be a part of the story I really love uh her falling because then it's like she's like oh shit I gotta shoot myself um but (laughs) but then she gets curious and she gets distracted and it's a really important part of Aeon's character that she is she digresses from whatever her mission is a lot of times because she gets curious about something and wants to know more. And that kind of goes back to that idea of Gnosticism um, about kind of like hunting for the truth um, and knowledge and how, but how it it always bites her. Like it's never a good thing when she tries to find out more um, because it just delays her from, uh, either committing suicide or, or trying to figure out some way to like use her grappling hook to save herself. Um, and instead mm-hmm. she gets invested in like, what are they bringing over the edge of this cliff? <laughs> and she ends up dying before she can like, right at the moment that she would see it, she dies. Huh. Yeah. That, and actually um, the gross mouth scene, uh, according to Peter Chung was inspired um, by the first episode of Rugrats. Um, where you look at, you are looking out of the mouth of one of the babies at another character. And um, he thought that that was like a really weird way to show the dominance of one character over another. And <laughs> and so he wanted to play with that idea uh, in Aeon Flux in a more like sexual way. That's funny, because I definitely, I had like, the four episodes um, that you gave me, like on my computer, my partner walked by and he was like, that is the grossest thumbnail I have ever seen <laughs> in my whole life. 
I was like, I am not watching that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of gross stuff. Um, like we haven't talked about like the eyeball stuff. Um, oh yeah. With- Which is like the cover of the whole DVD collection uh, from the pilot where she like catches the fly and her eyelashes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of the few uh, images that is like directly used in the Hollywood movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, he's definitely interested in kind of um, grotesque details in the body and, and animating them in a really lavish way to get you grossed out. Like you said, like, you know, your boyfriend just walked past and was like, nope, that like that is kind yeah. of that Peter Chung would be like, yeah, did it again. Like he would be into that. <laughs> and then the final episode we watched was thanatophobia, which means fear of death. Aeon spends her days bombing a factory that produces automated artillery guarding the wall between Bregna and Monica. The Breen couple of Sybil and Onan attempt to cross the wall. Onan escapes, but Sybil is shot in the spine, and one of her vertebrae is replaced with a prosthetic. To pay off the medical bill, she has to work at the factory that Aeon is bombing. Trevor Goodchild has sex with Sybil, and Aeon has sex with Onan. Jealousy and heartbreak lead Sybil to attempt to cross the wall again, but the defenses of the wall have been changed to amputate rather than shoot, and Sybil is left without legs. So, one connection that I had while watching this episode that I think (laughs) you would not have guessed was um, I've been catching up on episodes of Pop Culturally Deprived, and I just listened to the episode um, where you discuss Braveheart. Oh, yeah. With Mm -hmm. Mandy. And I think that movie also starts with, like, some kids beating the snot out of each other. Oh, right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And this episode uh, is bookended by the kids uh, just fighting on the street. In the initial scene, the kid is uh, who's watching is clapping along. And then at the end, he also has no arms. Um, So, like, he's been maimed trying to get across the wall. Yeah. And in the the first one the kids are not actually hitting each other and he is clapping to simulate the sound of them hitting each other. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah. And then at the end they are actually hitting each other and he is sitting there. He looks very um, depressed. Ooh, I love that. Cause then that's, I mean, that's basically right. Like the fight we're having right now, right. Is that we're like teaching cruelty to our children exactly. and like teaching violence to our children by our border policy. Yeah. And that's why I, I chose this episode and why I wanted to talk about Aeon Flux was uh, specifically because of the debate about um, Trump's wall and, and what I think this yeah. has to say about it. And like, obviously the wall between Bregna and Monica is not a perfect Oh, no. Analogy Mm-mm. to the wall between the U.S. and Mexico. But I think it does have some interesting things to say about what it means to build those walls. Like, does it actually benefit um, the entities on either side? And like, in what ways is it kind of like a trap, right? Where it's like there's so many incentives to try and cross the border and, and get through the wall. But then there's also a performative cruelty to try and catch the people who are doing that. It's like almost gladiatorial in a way. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And that um, Sybil is like put to work in the factory, creating the machinery that will then be used to harm her later. Right. Yeah, That that's the um, ironic thing about the ending. She helped to create her own destruction there. And like I said earlier, you, you have to kind of keep in mind when you watch this that Peter Chung grew up in South Korea thinking about the demilitarized zone and um, mm-hmm. everything that meant. Uh, and so that was kind of front of mind. And if you actually look at the wall in the episode, it's not a straight line. Like it zigs and zags. No, and the Sybil's apartment on one side of the wall and Eon's apartment on the other side of the wall, they can like not only like see into each other's apartments, but they like talk to each other. Yeah. It's like a very permeable barrier in some ways. Yeah, especially like culturally. And there there seems to be a kind of exchange that happens despite the fact that Bregna doesn't want that to happen. It's only one side that's not interested in um, Mm -hmm. and there's not a big difference between the people on either side. Um, So to be more clear about the politics of what's happening in the universe here, because I don't think this episode makes it clear and we skipped over um, other episodes that would clarify this. Bregna is kind of like um, a surveillance state it's kind of like 1984 Orwellian kind of a thing. Everybody has cameras in their home. Uh, they get um, reviewed by officials based on their behavior and stuff like that. And if they're not up to snuff, they get experimented on or killed. While Monica is basically a political anarchy. There's no ruling body. People kind of do what they want to do. So Aeon is a Monican you know, in that she is self-motivated. She does not fight for, like, the philosophy of anarchism or anything like that. She bombs the wall-making factory because she wants to. It's not Mm -hmm. like she's fighting for truth and justice in the Monacan way. She just thinks that it's a shitty factory and she doesn't want it there. (laughs) You know, it's a bad idea, and so she's trying to get rid of it. Um, and you'll notice in this episode, uh, and this is true if, if anybody wants to check out the rest of the series, that once the characters start talking uh, and we get more insight into Aeon's character, each episode of the, of the longer series of the third season is pretty much not about Aeon. It's always about some other characters. There's like an A story and a B story, but... Aeon's story is always the B story. Yeah, it was interesting. This was the first episode that I watched with dialogue, and it starts with her bombing the factory and giving weird dominatrix speech where it's like, is she talking to her bombs? Or like, I. <laughs> She's like singing a song, like, right? I guess, yeah. Ready if I'm ready for you, danger. Yeah. So, what do you think about um, this whole thing of like, that on the one hand, there's these gun turrets, and then there is, um, then at the end, there's amputation, and they, in, an official talks to Trevor at some point and is and tells him like, now if I'm going to spend all that money and for the support of a system that's not effective to begin with, I might as well do something else here. Something that won't hurt them so much. 
border containment is a joke with this present situation. What is it you have in mind, Your Honor? Oh, I don't know. Like scissors, huge scissors, to clamp shut right in the way. Just cut it off. If they're in the middle of it, cut them off. Know what I mean? Cut what off? People want to stay. It's the power of ideas. You're getting soft, good child. The men at the club have noticed. Your game is flagging. You should get out more. See what you're missing. Because I think the solution is supposed to be more humane rather than killing people for crossing the wall. It's supposed to stop them from being able to cross the wall. Um, but it also, like, it's performative cruelty and that it, like, leaves them as a lesson. Right. Right, because then you have all these amputees walking or wheelchairing around mm -hmm. as, like, a warning, which is kind of, like, what the Trump administration was trying to do with their family separation policy, right? right. Like, we're going to steal these people's children, give them to white evangelical families to adopt, and then people will stop coming because they'll hear that we're stealing children and that, like, it's a deterrent, basically. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. That's what it is. It's funny, in later episodes, you will see in the background uh, lots of amputees mm. who are just around. And so this, like, this problem spreads and kind of escalates. And then some of the Monacan characters, there's a famous one named uh, Scathandra. Her feet are amputated, and then she replaces them with hands. <laughs> so she has hands for feet, and it allows her to do all kinds of um, Spider-Man kind of stuff. Yeah, there's definitely like an aspect of, of body horror to this episode, mm -hmm. and, and that like disability and injury as an actual like way to superpower because once Sybil is like missing her vertebra and she has those little like cartridges that she puts in instead um, but she can also like take them out and it makes her way more flexible than she could have ever been yeah um, with her spine intact there's something in this episode about kind of like medical care and about the way that the state uses that to pressure her into doing what it wants so you broke the law. Now you work for us to pay off the way that we fixed you from the thing that we did to you kind of thing. Like, yeah. yeah, forced labor. And then, of course, the medical care is in some ways like turns into a, like a sexual dominance relationship, too, between her and Trevor when he's like doing surgery on her. <laughs> so that's um, when he originally was going to work on her spine he was going to put his um tongue in there and then Ugh. yeah <laughs> make it even worse than uh just putting some surgical instruments in there uh and then he like manipulates her uh nerves to orgasm or something mm -hmm. um but there's definitely like a penetration thing going on there but MTV yeah. said said no, absolutely not. You cannot do that. That's too sexual. And and they also said when he put the instruments in and stuff, the original track had her kind of like moaning and like it was obviously uh, sex. And MTV was like, oh, she can't enjoy this. She has to. It has to sound painful. Then it's okay. I think it's pretty ambiguous how painful versus pleasurable it is well they changed it when the dvd came out so apparently 
it was okay. worse. It was it was more like ah, like you're stop it, stop, stop. Um, which okay. is is actually like Peter Chung was like I didn't want to do that because it made it sound like like there was a consent problem there, um, mm. and it, it made it into something that was not the point. But MTV was more comfortable with that than with her enjoying uh, the experience at all. And it's like, it's so weird, like where our picadillos and hangups are um, yeah. as a culture around all of that kind of stuff. I guess I kind of read it as like a, like a Stockholm syndrome kind of thing, right? Like, yeah, he makes it pleasurable to her so that she will consent to it. And so she won't like question her role in the system. Um, but like, just because she is enjoying it and consenting doesn't make it less fucked up. Yeah, there's there's also an element in this uh, story of an ancient uh, story um, called uh, Pyram... Well, I'm going to say that maybe I'm going to say this wrong because I've only ever read it. Uh, Pyramus and Thisbe. Um, That's how I've always heard it. And okay. So my only familiarity with the story of Pyramus and Thisbe is that it was also adapted in A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is my favorite Shakespeare play, and I've seen it so many times. Um, oh, okay. I, so <laughs> I know it influences Romeo so yeah. and Juliet, too. Uh, yeah, so it's very different. Um, obviously, Midsummer Night's Dream is a comedy uh, and right. this is dark twisted nonsense um i mean that in the best way possible <laughs> right yeah no there's no happy endings or people with mule heads or anything like that yeah yeah um and the the babylonian story of pyramus and thisbe is is that they um can speak to each other through a gap in the wall um but they can't be together uh, and they fall in love um, by speaking to each other. And then so it's like the world's first online romance or something. Mm-hmm. And then they, when they try to meet in person, uh, tragic misunderstandings lead to them both killing themselves. Oh, I didn't realize the original was that dark. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why I said it influences um, Romeo and Juliet, um, because the ending uh, is almost exactly the same. I see. Yeah, whereas in A Midsummer Night's Dream, it's just, like, played for laughs. Yeah. And in this, it's not as tragic, um, but I I do think that there's an element of that story mixed in here. So, again, you know, like, Peter Chung is always um, calling back to these ancient stories and mixing them in with this high-concept science fiction kind of charged with modern political themes uh, about how people long for each other and how these irrational borders interrupt people's lives in a way that makes them needlessly complicated and tragic um, and hurtful. And you see that with the children at the beginning and the end, like you said, but also uh, especially with Sybil and Onan, because for um, Aeon and Trevor, it's actually trivial to cross the wall They're It's very easy for them because they're so powerful, but for regular people, it's extremely dangerous and fraught, which is exactly how it is in real life, when we build these walls, uh, it regular people are disproportionately negatively affected and very powerful people, you know, like the people who build the walls can easily travel across them or get what they need from one side or the other uh, with no problem. It 
doesn't interrupt their lives at all. So do you have any other final thoughts about the show as a whole? I think that the third season is like the best season when they add in uh, dialogue to everything. And it subverts its own form that it's established from the first two seasons. So the subversion is kind of so deep that it's even subverting itself and kind of reinventing itself. So instead of Aeon dying every episode, she lives through every episode but she's not the center focus of every story anymore. She's kind of tertiary. And then it explodes your expectations of that by uh, having her talk where she didn't used to speak, uh, which is something I, I appreciate like the artistic through line uh, that the show has. It's like, yeah, it's always trying to keep you on your toes and, and guessing and surprised. Definitely. Yeah. And, and also trying to like kind of push you away, you know, um, because (laughs) (laughs) even if you've bought in, you're like, Oh, cool. Yeah. This cool show where, where she dies every episode, because maybe you're into that for the wrong reason, because you like to watch, you know, there's like this whole thing of like a, a, you could read the second and first season as like a woman being punished every episode, um, Mm -hmm. you know, for, for her independence uh the third season inverts that in a way where um she's more triumphant and it even there's even an episode in the third season that explains how aeon has died over and over and over um oh really i'm curious about what that is because i kind of like that with her dying every episode it's like i like the the mystery of all of these stories kind of being in the same universe, but actually they, they like have to be in different universes. Um, It's like in every episode that you watch, like the things, the episodes that have come before maybe happened, but they must've, there must've been like some subtle differences in order for her to have ended up still alive in the universe that you're now currently watching. Yeah. It's like, that the episode that explains it's really interesting. Um, basically, there is a technology that allows you to copy a person, like as opposed to cloning them. Like if you clone someone, then you'd like incubate a baby, and then a person is born who looks exactly the same, right? But then they grow up and they have different. They don't have any of the memories, experiences, yeah, and they're like you know. 30 years younger. Exactly. However, you know. So this like grows a copy that looks exactly the same, you know, down to scars and stuff like that and has exactly the same memories at the moment of copying. In the episode where this is explained, Mm -hmm. the copy that she makes basically like sells out and becomes Trevor's girlfriend. And then she has to assassinate herself. Because she's like, this bitch, like, (laughs) I would never do this. How dare she? And she's kind of jealous on one hand, but on the other, she's also, like, angry uh, that this happened. And so it's like this interesting kind of identity thing. Um, But it also explains how she could have died so many times and keeps the universe kind of contiguous. There's And you said there's, like, alternate realities... That's also a thing, too, which gets explored later. So, Okay, so my final question, 
uh, while I was reading about the show last night, um, I found out that apparently um, in uh, mid-2018, they announced that there's going to be a live-action reboot uh, for a TV show airing on MTV, um, and apparently some of the, the people who have been working on Teen Wolf are involved in it. Huh. And so my question to you is, are you excited or are you scared? <laughs> I mean, Based on how well the movie did. Yeah, that's that's not encouraging, right? Um, I'm pro-adaptation no matter what the outcome is. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people get angry about reboots and remakes. And, and uh, it feels like there's kind of like a, a whole pie mentality to it that if this if this remake is getting made then that means that there will never ever be another chance you know if it's bad that this is it like we blew it and i'm never going to be able to see another live action version of this thing but i would say that if this thing happens it kind of proves that making a bad adaptation of something doesn't stop it from getting remade again uh yeah unfortunately i didn't see peter chung's name attached to it again and that would be the thing um yeah right like i feel like the creator should probably be involved there are episodes of aeon flux in the third season that are not directed drawn written or produced by peter chung and they are by far the weakest episodes those episodes feel like try hard edgelord stuff they just don't have the kind of intentionality and political awareness that the rest of the of the Peter Chung episodes have. He's not doing things arbitrarily. Um, mm-hmm. He's not just doing them for the hell of them. And there's like a reason behind everything that he's doing. And I don't think that the other creators quite understood how that works. So... It would depend, you know, like if somebody if somebody gets it, I think that there is plenty of stuff that this story would have to say about the political times that we live in right now mm-hmm. that could be really interesting and especially could kind of deconstruct superhero stories in a way that would be fresh for an audience right now and, and could turn people on uh, to this show and have a revival of it. It would be pretty cool. So I hope they do a good job. So that's it for our conversation about Aeon Flux. And if you are a fan of the All Souls trilogy, uh, starting with the book A Discovery of Witches, or maybe you've just discovered the TV show adaptation A Discovery of Witches, um, I'd like to recommend a podcast called Desire Made Real that is made by friends of the show Mandy Kay and Caitlin. And um, I'm... uh, special guest on most of the episodes talking about some of the science going on behind the scenes because um, you know the trilogy overall is about uh, you know rivalry between witches and vampires there's romance in there Um, but the the head vampire is a geneticist studying evolution of uh, magical creatures Uh, so I kind of give my input as a scientist on uh, on how the science uh, is affecting the show's plotline and the way that it's portrayed in the TV show. And so again, the name of that podcast is called Desire Made Real. 
Uh, you can find it on Twitter at DesireMadeReal. Um, and we have an announcement. We're going to be taking a two-month break because season two of the Stars TV show American Gods is coming out. Um, and we need to just take a, a break so we can focus on our American Gods podcast, which is called Shadows and Shamblers. Um, you can find that uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back in June uh, to talk about my favorite uh, rom-com growing up, uh, Bend It Like Beckham. Um, and and I'm super excited to talk about uh, this movie specifically in June um, because that is when the Women's World Cup is starting. And so I'm really excited to just get in the mood with some awesome women's soccer. Because that story is about soccer, right? Uh, it's about a lot of things. <laughs> uh, I would say like the number one theme is probably it's about like what it's like to be a third culture kid where like your uh, parents are immigrants and you've grown up in a country where like uh, the culture that you learn at school from your peers is really different from the culture you're getting at home from your parents and trying to integrate those two things uh, into your like individual identity and sense of self uh and then also romance and soccer yeah Uh, but yeah like like most of my favorite romance stories that's like the romance is secondary to uh some other more important things going on (laughs) as always if you'd like to leave us feedback you can visit hgstorycast.com slash contact or send an email to contact at halloweddgroundmedia.com uh, I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L I T E R L. You can follow the show on Twitter at HG Storycast uh, and visit our website at HGStoryCast.com. Hallowed Ground Storycast is a Hallowed Ground media production and is produced under a Creative Commons non commercial share alike license. Welcome to Hallowed... I forgot how to do this. Um, <laughs> Welcome to Hallowed Ground Storycast. I'm Anya. And I'm Alan. And this episode is about my favorite Dominic... <laughs> yeah. Uh, <coughs> right. And... <laughs> and should I just change everything that I just said? I would say... Um, <laughs> So how did you for Earth? I'm gonna try and not let my level spike. Do we want to talk about Gnosticism before we get into the the individual episodes? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of putting you on the spot. <laughs> I can kind of talk about it. Um, I mean, there there are. Do you do you want to ask it differently or just keep it that way? Um, uh, I'll give you. We'll give you some options. I'll I'll rephrase that. And that's just kind of where it ends. Sorry, I should have warned you. I replaced the word beetle with insects because they weren't beetles. Oh, I think they're, I think <laughs> the lore around it is that they are supposed to be beetles. If um, So I've listened to the commentary uh, tracks and stuff. And uh, gotcha. Peter Chung says beetles. But uh, I would trust what you say if you say they're not. Beetles. I mean, they looked more like hemipterans to me. I love it. Uh, tr- true bugs with sucking mouth parts. Uh-huh. But... Um, 
probably reading too much into the animation. No, no, that's great. Who knows? They might have used the wrong uh, uh, visual um, uh, reference. Yeah. Uh, wow, you made this blue. Am I supposed to talk about it or did I make it blue? No, I made it blue because I figured I'm going to be okay. talking too much. And if you want to okay, change any that's... of this, go ahead. No, no, no. That's good. Um, I mean, I'm not offended by it the way I was offended by the beetle part. <laughs> so in gravity, wait, okay. Is Eon or Aeon? It, Aeon? They say both. Um, and I don't. Okay, that's what I thought. I don't actually know. Uh, um, is there is there a name for that kink like getting pleasure from <laughs> grossing other people out i don't know it's definitely his thing <laughs> yeah who also has a dominatrix outfit and that's how yeah that's how you know he's uh they're made for each other um exactly it's it's really weird um it would be july when it would come out Wait, no, it has to come out in June. Okay. <laughs> I oh, don't know. Oh, so it, wait. There you go. Sorry to give you some complicated editing. Nah, that's all right. That's easy. Yeah, I figure it's all at the end that makes it easier.